Welcome to My Life to the Supplies, episode 276. This program is dedicated in honor of the first yard size of Hindi, Hindi Kanner Fogel, in loving memory of Hindi Leia Bas Mendel, La Yigba Balayla Neda, her lamp does not go out at night. May this program and may all our learning together and the help it does for so many people all over the world stand in her merit as we are honoring this program in her name. So we are now at the beginnings of the month of El. Month of El, of course, is uh, the month of the conclusion of the past year, the preparation for the new year, as we've been discussing over the past weeks. So this coming Shabbos is going to be Pasha Kiseitze, so we're in the week of Kiseitze, as well as this week has uh, two special days in the Chabad calendar. The 11th of El is the wedding anniversary of the Rebbe Rashab in Tafre Shlamet Hay. And the 13th of El is the wedding anniversary of the Rebbe Friedrich Rebbe in Tafre Shnun Zayin. Special Maimorim were said in Tafre Shlamet Hay, the Rebbe Marash said, Chasna Maimorim at the Rebbe Rashabs, connected to the Rebbe Rashab's marriage. And in Tafre Shnun Zayin, of course, we have the Hamshechim. Uh, and So there's much material there in understanding the deeper meaning of a wedding and a marriage. It's interesting that Abayim, they made an effort that marriages should happen in the month of Psula is the mazel of this month. The month of El is a special month of uh, appropriate for weddings. Or the month of Kislev and the Rebbe's wedding was Yudalit Kislev. So let's begin with that since that's the closest to us. A marriage, as we know, especially in Torah in general, especially in Chassidus, is about the union of two souls. Zochem Nekeva Bara Esam, God created male and female, then he separated them. And essentially a marriage is the reuniting of two halves of a soul, Pla Gufa, and hence the great Simcha, not just for the individuals, but for the entire Jewish people, for the entire world, and indeed for the entire Seder Ishtashos, for the entire cosmic order. Because when two souls who were separate, separated, come back together, it creates a unity that ripples through all of the cosmos, through all of the levels. And that is indeed a tremendous force because the purpose of creation is to take a fragmented world that, that is separated and split and sometimes even divisive and turn it into unity, harmony within diversity. And where else is that best captured than in a marriage? And that's why Hashem blesses and God blesses this couple with Prudavu Milusa the blessing of Koyecha Einsef, as the Maimorim, the Drushe Chasana, the Maimorim, the discourses that talk about marriage, the blessing of being able to create life. And not just one life, many lives and for generations to come. Long after even the, the, the couple that bear children outlasts them, and it's essentially a perpetual fruit which is a keicha ensof, given to the mortal human being to create something immortal, the power of God himself. All because of that unification, that connection of male-female, the two energies of masculine and feminine that come together, that selam alakim is only complete when you have them both. This is discussed in many of the Maimarech Siddhas, including the Maimarech I just referred to and others as well. And also the great Simcha, Simcha Peretz Gedder, that expression actually originates in the Maimar Samach Tasamach said at the Rebbe Rashab said at the Friedrich Rebbe's wedding. What does Simcha Peretz Gedder mean? Joy 
pierces all boundaries, breaks all boundaries. When you're, enjo- when, you're, when you're joyous and you're happy, you don't go by the regular limitations. You just have a certain unbridled force, an unbridled passion and energy to just pierce through everything, break through every boundary possible. That's what joy does to a person, to the, the, the human spirit. He says it in that moment, because again, the joy of what? The joy of these two souls coming together in the language of Chesidah, Zoh and Malchus. Yichud Zun. Zoh refers to the Zohar, the masculine, and, and the Keva refers to Malchus, is the Nukve. Yichud Kuchabrichu Vishchinta is another expression used for it. Where did it all originate? Yem Chasunah Seizem Matanteda. By Matanteda was the original marriage between Kuchabrichu and Shechina, and Knesset Yisrael between God and the Jewish people. That's the marriage. We're now in a period in the month of El, we're preparing for the ultimate marriage. Why? Because the marriage took place, the initial steps of it took place on Shavuos. But then, because they built the golden calf, and they never received the first tablets, which was the Ksuba, the Shtar Ksuba, the marriage contract, so Moshe went back up on the mountain to beg for forgiveness, to besiege God, and finally prevails when a Yom Kippur, when the second Luchas, so Yem Chasinos is the Mishnah in Tainus refers to is Yom Kippur. So this is now a period that we prepare for marriage, which is only accentuates and explains why El is so much connected to marriage. So when we're celebrating the marriage of Rabbeim, in addition to the Simcha that every couple has, we're also talking about Nisim, leaders of a generation, Nishama Klolis, collective soul. So you can imagine how much more so that simch is. It's not just theirs, it's the collective joy of all of us in the celebration and the power it gives for us to do our Yehudim, each in our own little fragmented lives, to bring together forces and unite them toward the divine and create that harmony within diversity. And when that's done, it's a tremendous joy, a tremendous simcha. We talk about Melech Basada, the king is in the field. Also, you can allude that to marriage as well. Marriage, chup is done outside, in the field. I've never seen that, but it just came to me as we're speaking now. And other references in El that all can accentuate this point. So the lesson and the Hasidus applied of it is pretty clear. And um, with that, let us go now to Kiseitse. And the Kiseitse, actually a few questions came in that are talk about some very seemingly puzzling that bizarre laws in this parsha. So the chassidus applied will do through those, through those uh, two laws that are seem wonder, which is about how do you explain the laws of Yefas Teyar and Ben Seder Rameda in this week's parsha? I'll read the full question, dear Rabbi Jacobson. Thank you for your weekly class. I've been listening for a few years, but this is my first question. As I started Rambam once again recently, and I'm going through the mitzvahs. Two questions came up that have always bothered me. This is connected to Pashtas Kisese. Number one, why by the mitzvah of Yafas Teir do we say the concept of Dibra Teir Kenegad Yetzirah? Why not by any other mitzvah challenge a Jew may have? So let me explain. The mitzvah of Yafas Teir, I talked about the laws of Yafas Teir, I should say, the beginning of Kisese. So we know the Pasha begins, Kisese Lemuchoma Alei Vecha. When you will go out to war upon your enemies and God will give them to you, meaning you will win, and you will take captive. And then it continues and says that if you see, someone sees and has a desire for a woman who's beautiful, one of the captives, so the Tehidah gives a whole bunch of guidelines what you can do 
to have a relationship with her. But right there is a question, what kind of behavior is that? Since when does the Teda allow just because you want a war? So the Chazal say, and Rashi cites, the Teda speaks, so to speak to the Yetzirah, since the Teda knows and recognizes that a person will have a Yetzirah, especially in this state. So the Teda says, you know what, let's give him a little leniency. Instead of him doing a prohibition, be giving, giving a loud alarm to do it, and hopefully come to a point as the Teda continues that he'll find it, ab- he'll find it abhorrent and find her repulsive. And the Teda gives guidelines how that can be led to. So the question that's asked is a very obvious question. What kind of Tater suddenly speaking and, and, and so-called placating the Yetzirah? If that's the case, the whole Tater should be doing that in different mitzvahs. What's up, here? And even here, even one place, what kind of, uh, what kind of statement is that? That suddenly we're, dis- we're recognizing the weakness of a person. We have many weaknesses, especially in this area. That's question number one. Then the Tater continues, there's another din about Ben Seder Rameda. This is a child who rebels, mutineers against his parents. Why by Ben Seder Rameda, the second question, do we say kill him? So Yom is Zakai, Al Yom is Chayiv. So the Gemara in Sanhedrin, there's a whole Masech, there's a whole Pedic in Sanhedrin called Ben Seder Rameda, based on the verses in this week's chapter, that says that he's to be put to death based on obviously a bunch of conditions. And the expression the Gemara uses, let him be killed in a meritorious way, because all he did at this point is he indulged gluttonously in wine and meat and so on. But let him be put now to death, so he should not, not be put to death once he goes and reaches greater sins. Again, what kind of question? What is that? So he asks, what about tshuva? Maybe he can do tshuva? Or maybe when he grows up, he will shape up? The question writes, we know that the Gemara also says that a Ben Seder Meida may never have happened. Actually, the Gemara says it never happened and never will happen in the future. But if Tate is telling us about this mitzvah, I'm sure there's something we can learn from it. I don't know if you have discussed this in the past. If yes, can you please let me know where I can find the answers? Thank you very much for all your time and all you do for us. Okay, so let's take one at a time. And actually, they are connected. Because as Chazal say, and Rashi also brings it, that as a result of taking the Eshi Sifas Teyar, then the next Pesukim talk about the law of taking two wives and one you dislike, that that's a result of that. And then the birth of a Ben Seder made as a result of, of indulging in that taiva, even though the Teyar speaks connected and allows it, but there are real negative consequences. And Ben Seder made is one of them, as Chazal, the Gemara says, and so on. So there's a connection. But let's begin with the first question, the most obvious question about the Yafasta. What means Dibateta Kenegadi Yetzahara? So indeed, the question, of course, has not been asked the first time here. There are many commentaries talk about it, but let's begin with the Arizal himself. The Kisve Arizal. And I'm now reading from Lukute Tedel Arizal, Pasha Kiseitse, on this week's Pasha. And Taimia Mitzvah from the Arizal, as well as Sharha Mitzvah from the Arizal, all written by Rabchaim Vital, the Arizal did not write his own Tedel. Asked exactly this question. And I'll read it. The late Dibra Tayla Kanega de Yetzahara. So it says that as I'll say that there's a hutra, the Tayla gave a permission for the person to have a relation with this Yifas Tayla, with this beauty, with this beautiful woman. Because the late Tibra Tayla Eli Kanega de Yetzahara. So he asked that is Allah's, because you can't control and conquer your, your negative, your evil inclination, Yatirenu. It should be permitted. 
And that's the case. It should be with all the mitzvahs. Wherever a person cannot control themselves, the tater should give them some uh, leniency, some uh, license. And this, the, the Rizal asks, I said, in the several different places. What is his answer? His answer is, interestingly, that we're talking about Mechemes Rishus. This is talk about Mechemes Rishus, meaning a war that was not an obligatory war. Kisetzel Mechem Alevecho is not an obligatory war. Because that had very different rules, and the rules in this Pasha do not apply to that. Mechemes Rishus says that, Rizal, with Sadikim Gemurim are involved. Only those that were completely righteous people, who were not capable of having a desire for any woman that was not their wife. So if they desired, it means because they saw the spark, the holy spark that's there, and that's why the Teda permitted it. And what means Dibra Teda Kenegadi Yetzirah? It's talking, the Teda is talking Kenegadi Yetzirah, not to satisfy the Yetzirah, but this is the war with the Yetzirah for all of us who may have such a challenge. That Israel doesn't say that explicitly, but the Shalah on this chapter and Rabbeinu Bechai do say that explicitly. Interestingly, the Rebbe has a note in when he re- made footnotes in the Maimon and Tovshin Ches. So there's a footnote from the Rebbe, but then there's an addition to that footnote, which is now printed in Lukut Tzichis, volume 19, page 506, where he talks about Yifas Teyar and cites this uh, Kisra Arizal, and of course the, the, the explanation of Inexidus, which we'll talk about in a moment, and says exactly that. You're talking about that Sadikim uh, Gmurim, and therefore, since they crave for something, it means because there's a spark with Shavisa Shivya in that captive, a spark that's trapped, that's relevant to this person who's desiring it, and that's why he takes her in order to be able to elevate that spark. So, God forbid that the Torah is giving in to somebody's Yetzirah. Here, there's no Yetzirah involved. We still need to understand what means in the literal interpretation. I'll get to that in a moment. Then the Rebbe continues and speaks that there are two types of sparks. There are sparks that are allowed in permitted places, sparks that are not permitted places. The difference between a regular refinement or separation and elevation and a bit of an assign, of a test, where there's involved sakona. And therefore, there you need Mesidus Nefesh. And the Rebbe says that comes from the core essence of the soul. So he says, now you fast here, you have to say it's a spark that fell in an inappropriate place. In Shalosh Klippus Atmeis. Even though it's not an exact test, the Rebbe says, because the Tate is permitting it. Nevertheless, it's an Aveda through for Chashakta, through a desire, through a very strong, passionate desire. The, which is refers to an Aveda Atzmis, an Aveda that's coming from the deepest part of the soul, and Mesidus Nefesh, and even a Sakoni, you put yourself even in danger. Baharaya says that, because from this came his bird, born the Seder Ben Seder Ameda. But because the spark was so important to elevate, these Tzadikim Gemurim went for that. And that's what the Tate is allowing, to elevate it. Now, what does he say in Lukut Tate briefly? He talks about. Yifasteir and Eishis Yifasteir, that Yifasteir is the Neshama as it is in its source, and Eishis Yifasteir is how the Neshama comes down, Lamata Neshama Beguf. And the point is that we want to reveal the core of the soul in the soul as it is down here in the body. So Yifasteir, according to the, according to the Alter Rebbe, is referring to Kedusha. But a nitzutz that came in a spark, a spark of holiness that came in a wrong place. 
That's the Nakuda that he says. He cites a Zoyar, I believe it's Tikkuni Zayar, that says that when you go to war and Katla the Chavya, you destroy the Chavya, the Nochash, which is the spiritual serpent, the negative forces, you're given a gift of Barta the Malka, Barta the Melech, the daughter of the king. The king. And that's how he explains your Yifasteya. So result, since they went to war, what was the war? The war is, as we said, it's a war against negative forces. Negative Yetzirah. Even though these tzaddikim don't have the Yetzirah, but the Yetzirah in general. They went to war against negative forces, against Sitrach. And they win the war. And yet there's still sparks, that, and there are sparks to be redeemed through the war and through the Shivya, through the captives. So when they redeem those sparks, that's the Yifasteya, they're redeeming the holy sparks the divine forces that are embedded in, that were taken captive in, by the enemy. That's how it's explained in Apichsidus. In Pshat, yeah, and the Brazizal continues, before we get to Pshat, he continues, he actually, Apichsidus brings this as well, it continues and says how this bitter happens. This is the second Maimon Kisaitse in Lukutatera, talks also about the different steps. Where he talks about um, that what you have to do afterwards is um, clean, clean her garments, the nails, the hair. All this is the Aveda. Uboksa, Alavio, it says, let her cry for her father. And he says, that is for a month, that's the month of El. So it's all connected to this month. It's all pre- preparing that where the sparks fell into places, negative places, here is the Tatus telling us how we redeem them. That's how it's explained in Primis Atera. In Nigla, Yutaka have a, ch- a challenge. Why the Tate is suddenly allowing and giving permission here? And that is a question. The thing you could say is, why here? Because it could be during war. This is, uh, I haven't seen it in the commentaries, but I'm almost, I'm almost sure it does say it. There can be an arousal of more passions or hormones and so on. So the Tate recognizing human nature, instead of putting a person to a tremendous Nisoyen during war, creates a little loophole, but with the intention that a person should not necessarily grab it, and not, and because it says there, and if you don't desire her, what you have to do, and then do things that actually come to a point where you don't want to have her. But in Primis the Yifas comes into a whole sugi, becomes a whole subject matter of how he elevates sparks. So that's the point regarding Yifas Now let's move to Ben Seder de Meda. Ben Seder de Meda, which is completely bizarre if you go to the details. So you're talking about a boy. It says a Ben, a child, a son. A son, not a daughter. A son, and it has to be with all kinds of conditions that are written in Tereh Shebiksav, and even more in Tereh Shebaped, arrived and learning it out of the verses. So first of all, let's talk about this. The whole Ben Seder de Meda is only possible three months from the time that he becomes... He's becoming an adolescent until three months later. After that, no matter how he behaves, all these laws don't apply. Before that, they also don't apply because he's not mechuyi mitzvah. He's a cotton. So these three months. In these three months itself, the behavior has to be so abhorrent. Well, I wouldn't say so abhorrent, but so almost impossible when you look at the conditions. The wine he has to drink, the meat he has to eat, the father and mother both have to agree that this is a problem. Then it goes on further and says the father and mother even have to be the similar voice. They have to be alike. And here's where the Gemara says the famous statement 
that what does it mean to be alike? It's not natural. Husband and wife are not alike in so many ways. So it says this is like Dasra Bihuda that holds in the Tesefta that's been stated and made it to use the exact lotion is um, the Gemara. This is Gemara Sanhedrin, Daf Ayanala, from of the Mishnah, that says, Aben Seder Meda, Loi Hoyo, never happened. Veloi Osidli, it never will happen. Then Rabbi Yenison says that he actually was by a grave, he sat on a grave. It's a whole discussion of what that means, of Aben Seder Meda. But commentaries ultimately say even that is not really a contradiction because it's not an actual Ben Seder Meda. Before the Medrash and Chazal also cite Avshalom as being an example. Avshalom, because David Amelech was with like a Yefas Teyar, therefore came a Ben Seder Meir, came Avshalom came out of that, and he rebelled against David Amelech and ended up being a killer and a murderer and causing a lot of, lot of trouble. But the consensus is that that's not necessarily a complete Ben Seder Meir, it's Al Derecha Ben Seder Meir. So this makes it even more. Strange. Besides the fact that the conditions can't be met, the Gemara says, Befeidish, it never happened, it never will happen. So then why is the Tata busy with such a thing altogether? What is it coming to tell us? So the Gemara answers when he says, why is the Tata says? So it says, Boy, to study in order to receive reward for studying Tata. There's many ways that Tata could have added Tata for us to study Tata. The fact that it tells us all these details, there has to be more to the story. And all the commentaries talk about this as well. So let's talk about one of the lessons from Ben Seder the Maiden. And finally, I should say, before we get to the lessons, let me just say this. What I mentioned earlier, that the Gemara later says, that, that asked the question, well, just because he drank wine, it was gluttonous, didn't do any crime like murder yet or any of that nature, so you, so you go and kill him? So the Gemara says, you're not killing him for now, you're killing him for the future. Al-Ossidu, what's going to happen later. The Tate is predicting that a person like that, a child like that, will later become rebellious against parents and then become a thief and then ultimately a murderer. So you're killing him now. Which again, begs so many questions that uh, what happens if he does tshuva? Do we judge people on the future? And so on. So clearly there's more going on here. So in the Masha on the Gemara, and the clay yakar on the verse, they both talk about there's a lesson in chinuch. That the Torah is coming to teach us the importance of educating our children not to allow them to come to a place that can get worse. And the Rebbe has a beautiful sikha, a beautiful lesson. I, I looked around in Chassidus, I could not find anything on Ben Seder that made in Chassidus. I found in Kabbalah there is, the Rizal, in the same Pasha Kiseitz I mentioned before. But in a sikha in Parshas Kisove, Tov Shin Lamed Gimel, the Rebbe speaks about it. And he says the following. He says, what do we learn from the Seder Meda? Because parents could argue, you know, why do I have to now put so much emphasis on educating my child at this young age? Wait till the child gets older. Meanwhile, you can spoil the child, and so on. That's what the Rebbe says. So we learn from this Seder Meda, and no, that's not the case. Education has to begin right away because you don't know what can happen. And the meaning, even though the Rebbe doesn't cite the Gemara in Sanhedrin, but he's basically learning a lesson. Al Shema Osid, but that's coming to teach us that you have to think about the future. You don't think about right now. So now you have to do everything possible, not just for the physical well-being of a child, but also for the spiritual well-being of a child. And not wait till later. 
Because every child needs discipline, needs education. And that's what Teda is. That's what the Teda, the, the illuminating Teda, illuminates for us through Ben Seder the Meda, that importance. Because if you don't do something now, later it'll become worse. And it'll ultimately uh, defy and rebel. And who knows what could happen, God forbid. So the Rebbe continues, but the parents can say, of Shamochal Kvede Mochal, parents, Kibbutz is a great mitzvah. But you know what? I'm, I'm foregoing it. I'm allowed to forgive. The Rebbe says, no, the, the Ben Sedemir is not just going to attack his parents. You want to forgive, you forgive. That's also not appropriate. But he's ultimately going to attack others. He's ultimately become much worse and affect others. Then the Rebbe continues and says, there's Lomnim that come and argue. That uh, the expression that it never happened. So then, what are we worried about? Why are we worried that Ben Seder made it never happened? So the Rebbe says, you don't need a raya from Tanakh. We see God forbid, what happens to children when you give them, you spoil them, you see what problems that can come out of it. Now, again, the Rebbe, everything is bediuk. This sounds like he's also alluding to the Das of Rabbi Yenison that says that I did see a Ben Seder Nameda. In other words, even though Taka, in reality, there's no such thing that will happen, but the conceptual possibility, and here he saw something or something similar to that, tells us how much we have to be careful in Chinuch. And that has to begin immediately. A few more other points I want to add to this interesting thing when looking into the whole thing. The Rebbe then continued in this sikhah, it's later printed, the rest of it is edited. It's printed in volume 14, page 262 and 263, where he talks very strongly when he came out that summer about chinuch, education of children. The pi'elin v'yenkin yasadat from the mouths of babes, you found eiz teda, hajbiz evo misnakim, to eliminate every enemy and, uh, and adversary. Later, when the Yom Kippur War broke out that year, Yom Kippur, after that summer, the Rebbe in the Sukkah Sichas, after the war broke out, said, Niva v'layadam aniva on himself. Prophesized and did not know what he was prophesizing. Something pushed me, the Rebbe said, to talk about the chinuch of children in order to prevent enemies and prevent attacks. So the Sichah was very much connected to that. So here you have a lesson, Ben Seder, that made it in our lives, and you can understand why the Teda says, Dresh v'kabal schar. You learn it in Mechabah not just schar for learning, but also learning the lesson that parents learn out of this, as the Masha and the Kleyokers say. I want to add one very fascinating Zayar as well on this topic. Zayar in Bolak, Tafkuf Tzadik Zayin, Ahmed Beis, 197b, tells us a very interesting story about Ben Seder. That when Moshe heard from the Ebersh saying Ben Seder made the dinim of this rebellious child, So just, I'll just give you the brief of it. Omar Ababa, that when Moshe saw it, he was very surprised. He says to the Ebeshter, God Almighty, is it possible that there's a father that will behave this way with his child? With his son? Because Moshe saw with his wisdom, the Zayar says, that this is referring to the Bnei B'chei Yisrael, the children of Hashem how they would behave, and how, what would happen later to them, God forbid, all the punishments they would receive that they would, through their rebellion. 
Hashem responds to him, leave this alone. Hashem says to Moshe, I see what you're saying, but you write this and receive reward for writing it. Just like you're, yes, you're trying to find a merit in them, but you're receiving reward for writing it even when there's no merit. Because what will happen? As the commentaries on Zayr explain, the Migdash Melech, as well as the Erechama. He says, you know, but I know more than you know. What you see, I have the responsibility to actually perform. So the Rishas Sarkasov learned this Pasuk and forget about its deeper meaning. Then the Zayr continues that the Malach comes, you feel, and tells Meshur Rabbeinu that from this verse we derive Yes, that Hashem is the, is the parent. And the child is the Eden. And he goes on to say what will happen then is that the parent will not be able to be harsh with the child. So he'll bring them to Zikne Ire, which also goes on God. And at the end of the day, because the parents are subjective, they can't pass judgment on the child. So God will have to pass judgment. And then what will happen is, says, Viragmua, they will stone him. That's what the Pesach says. It refers to Mu Zayra says, referring to the Goyim, the Saini Yisrael, Hashem Yinkum Domam, who would kill you know, the, the Jews throughout the generations by through, through stone. They would um, stone them, they'd build walls, and they'd do all kinds of things to punish the Jews. But here comes the end. This is the end. The end is a happy ending. And nevertheless, they will not be able to overcome and destroy the Jewish people. When Moshe heard that, they can't destroy the Jewish people, that's when he began to write this Parsha. That's the Zayar. In the commentaries on Zayar, interestingly, Migdash Melech brings that the Malach told Moshe Rabbeinu that it's not, the Pesach is not talking about the Eden, ultimately it'll be Shifchu Chamosei al Eitzim Balavonim. The Ebeshter will release his wrath on the Beis Amigdash, that is talking about the destruction of the Beis Amigdash. Anyway, it's a lot of details in this. I just wanted to bring it because I thought it was very interesting to cite in this whole context. I think that covers it. And of course, we have the lessons now in education and we have the lesson, the first lesson, Yifasteya. So this went longer than usual, but it is a topic that is a very controversial topic. That's why I decided I'll talk about it some more than, than usual. Okay. With that, let us move now to continue questions for this week's episode. So here we go. What methods should be used to discipline young students? That was not even planned, but it seems to go very flow from where we are. Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. I'm a mashgiach and a masifta, and sometimes I need to use some gvura, which is some uh, gvura means strength or authority or uh, um, to discipline bochrim. Students that misbehave sometimes. However, I have a hard time to fig- in figuring out the exact method I should be using. Giving money knossim, meaning giving money punishments they should pay, does help, does help temporary, but sometimes, but I feel bad taking money from students that don't have, in addition to it, causing them resentment. Making them learn Tanya or Mishnai's by heart just causes them to start disliking those topics. What gvura do you suggest using? Thanks so much for all your effort. I really gained from your weekly classes. So first day I spoke about this in episodes 2 and 3 and 52. So if you go to chassidahsupply.com, you can find references to all the previous episodes, as well as the archives, as well as there you can submit your question completely anonymously. 
Briefly, we have directives about this from the Rebbe and from all the Rabbeim, but especially from the Rebbe. In general speaking, you use the strong arm to bring close, and even if you have to discipline, it has to be with the weaker arm. Discipline is never an end in itself. You judge the nation in order to preserve them. So it's necessary because it's part of the process of discipline and education. We talked before about education. But never as an end in itself. So the first thing we need to do is psychologically, the mindset has to be, you're not coming to punish. You're coming to educate. You're coming to inspire. You're coming to empower people, not demoralize them. It's a key, key word, not demoralize them. So sometimes you need gvur. Now how do you do that? You can do it through grounding. You can do it through the, whether there's a reward for other students, a trip. There are ways to make them, send a message home that a person did something. Of course, everything, everything commensurate to what they did. I'm not here to come up with ideas how to discipline. I'm talking about more the attitude to it. The Rebbe once mentioned, or more than once mentioned, that today we don't use a stick. Even though it says shavit, that the shavit musar, meaning that if you, uh, if you withhold the rod, you're actually hating your child. So the Rebbe says today it's showing the rod. Showing them is enough. Enough prevent to prevent. So we don't use aggressive means like that today. It's not the time to get into the discussion why and how was it, why was it different in the past, whether it was actually different, etc. So the point is discipline should never be in a way that's demoralizing. You're actually, you're actually right if there's resentment and there's, they stop liking what they're doing. Now obviously every punishment, every type of discipline is going to be some resentment. But there has to come always with love. And there's ways to do that when you communicate. That we're going to, because of what happened, here's, here's a, here privately and not in a humiliating way, here's what we're going to have to do. This is the consequences to teach the lesson. But you should know it's coming from a loving place. It's not coming from a vindictive place. It's not coming from anger. And that's the responsibility of the teacher or the parent to make sure there shouldn't be any tinge of anger. It's not personal. You're not getting even. It's not about you. It's about what's best for the child. And sometimes you need to have a strong way to make that, send that message across. Okay, let's go to the next question. Displaying photos of women is the title. So here's a short question. What is the obligation of a Chabad? I'm sorry, is, is it appropriate to publish pictures of women in our publications and websites? Okay, so this is a topic, of course, that has come up quite a few times. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, can we get this clarified once and for all? Why is there so much reticence and discouragement of displaying photos of, photos of women in Chabad publications, websites, and Haredi publications in general? Of course, we are not talking about photos that are not Tznuah Chaz Rishalom, God forbid. But why is there an issue with displaying photos of Frum Chzidish women, modest women, who are Shluches, Rebetzins, and Chasides? Are we trying to say that no matter how hard a woman tries to dress Bitsnias modestly, she will always be considered distasteful and lewd? So much so that she cannot appear in a material marketed to Frum Chzidisha families? I just don't get it. This sends a terrible message to young girls and boys. It also bothers me that certain media promoted towards young Frum children feature no grown women. How exactly are they supposed to have Frum female role models if they can't even look at them? I don't understand how this unfortunate phenomenon aligns, aligns with Chassidim worldwide, proudly displaying photos of the Chabad Rebetzins in their homes. Also, I recall that in the late 80s, early 90s, the Rebbe sanctioned for two books to be published featuring the photos of all the families of the Shluchim around the world. 
The faces of the shluchas, the proud wives and mothers who lived with Mesidus Nefesh, every day were displayed prominently and never edited out, God forbid. Why don't we apply that standard today? Why have we become so cruel by denying the incredible Noshim Sitkanius, righteous woman, a platform to simply acknowledge that they exist as equal partners in shlichus? Why have we fallen so low? And what can we do to fix this problem as soon as possible? Many thanks for your level-headed com- commentary on so many important issues. Kol Tuv. Okay. So firstly, as you know, this is not a platform for halachic decisions. And anything I'm going to say here is with a great qualification that this should be asked to your local rov. Because number one, the laws of modesty and tzniyas in general, besides obviously things that are universal and things that are very clear-cut, sometimes is relative to a community, what their standards are, and so on. So this is included. If, for example, in a community for some reason, this is the standard, there's no photos made, no photos published, so most rov in that community, or whoever those people are, the target audiences, will probably uphold that. And that's not because there's something wrong with the women. We're talking now the halacha of it, the teda hashkafa, the teda view on it. Because that's a standard. This is based on a Gemara in Sanhedrin that talks about the picture of a woman. However, there are communities where the standard is not quite that stringent. In addition to the fact, yes, like you just mentioned, the Sefer Ashlichus, where the Rebbe now is sanctioned, was the one encouraged and pushed, and there's pictures of entire families, men, women, and their children. We also have the pictures of the Rebbetsons. And the Rebbe actually has a letter to one of the Rabbonim who wrote to the Rebbe, how could you print a picture of the Rebbetson? The Gemara, the Gemara that I just cited, that you're not supposed to look at a woman, even in a published form. And the Rebbe actually uses that whole Gemara and says... All the details in the Gemara don't apply when it's talking about that it can be made at Shemaim and bring Yiddish Shemaim and so on. I'm not going to go through all the details. I believe I may have spoken about it once. If not, if anybody wants that answer, it's available. Actually, the Rebbe is handwriting on this Rav's question. I can speak also from personal experience. When my father, after the Rebetzin's passing in Tchov Be'ishvat, Tov Shemem Ches, published the Rebetzin's pictures in the newspaper. So there's the Algemein. It's not necessarily a, a newspaper only for Chredim. This newspaper, but he published it. There were people who had tainus, and the Rebbe actually thanked my father for doing it. I'm not saying that's proof that in a, uh, in a journal or something that's going from only from Eden has to be done, but it's just interesting to point out. Now you'll see in a tater journal, they don't print pictures altogether. But in a tater journal, most likely they would not print a picture of women. So there are different standards. You have to know who you're dealing with, who's the target audience, what's the standard of the community, and there is no real black and white answer. It could be explained, remember, the laws of modesty are not always the ones that we make sense to us, even though it makes sense. It's not about in any way, God forbid, belittling or in any way demoralizing women. That's not the goal, even those that would stand by and say, better not print the picture. But the bottom line is that there's different standards and that's how it has to be addressed. So I am definitely not going to give one ruling because no rov in the world can give one ruling for every situation. That is the general answer to this question. Okay, but I want to again emphasize, most importantly, that in any situation, there are unfortunately people who use tzniyas in a negative way, who use it as a stick and abuse people in the name of it. And yes, do demoralize and do humiliate others. That was never the laws. The laws of tzniyas are about dignity. The dignity of a woman is internal. And that's why women do not have a public role and so on in the most prominent way. They have their public role in the right proper setting. 
and other laws that apply. It's dignity. It's not about shame or shaming. That's critical to know. And indeed, based on the standards, that's regarding the actual publishing or not publishing of women's pictures in different uh, magazines or publications or online. But clearly, it's not a black and white no. It's not a black and white yes. That's the main point here. Okay, I want to go back to one thing I just neglected, even though I spoke at length about Ben, uh, ben Seder and Meda. It's an interesting, in Magolis Hayam, this is from Rabruv Magolis, on the Gemara in Sanhedrin, he brings several things about what means when something is Drej V'Kabal means learning in Kabal even though it's Yagl Tere V'Yadr, it's not Mitzad the Halacha itself. Nevertheless, he says clearly from several sources, including the Shalah and others, than Sefer Chassidim, that there are lessons, real lessons to be learned. It's not just about learning more Teda. So that just reinforces the point that there's lessons to be learned from this actual passion. But he also brings something interesting from the Sefer Achaim. This is by um, the brother of the Maral. He says that, when, when I mentioned before from the Zayar, that children are called, uh, Israel is called, these Bnei Yisrael, are called Bonim Lamokim, children of Hashem. So when the Gemara says, Loi osed li, as they won't be a Ben Seder in the future, because Seder and Meda was only possible for three months. Three months, as we said from the Gemara, only three months from the time where he brings two siders, two hairs, until a certain stage. So he says, these three months are from the three months from Yitzhiya Mitzrayim to Matan Teda. So that's where only then it would apply. Just thought it was an interesting uh, thought. Okay, let's go back now to the next question. Next question, my friends. What is the obligation of a Chabad school to the children in their area? And, ex- and a, an extension of that question is when the Chabad school is full or we have no other valuable op- viable option, can we lower our standards of chinuch by sending our children to another day school? What is, okay. what is the obligation of a Chabad sh- to the children in their area? Where are parents supposed to send their children that are in kindergarten plus to school the only cheder and the only from school in the surrounding area is full? Quote unquote. Is it acceptable to lower our standards of chinuch by sending it to different types of day schools if, 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 if we have no other viable option? Just rewording it based on the way they're right or right. So first, the episodes 69, 223, and 258 are vital because I discussed it more at length then. Acheder, it's very clear from the Rebbe, the Rebbe has sikhs where he says very sharply that the school is not, the, the parents and the children are not made to fill up a school, the school is made to serve children. The Rebbe talks about this, tuition and other issues. A cheder, especially a cheder chabad, the ruach, the spirit of the Rabbeim, is there to serve every child in the area. And if you need to expand the school, you expand the school, and you need to raise more money, you raise more money. That's bottom line. Obviously, there, are, there, are, there has to be some rational uh, planning, but nevertheless, that has to be the commitment. Unfortunately, and I'm not criticizing anyone individually, there are schools that have become run more like a business, and based on both on the financial side and also who we take in and so on. So therefore, there are problems in that area. Each case has to be addressed properly by the Rabbonim in that community. And if you have an issue in your community with a school that is, in your opinion, not, and again, has to be, remember, your opinion may also not be correct, but let's say you do have an opinion, you go to them the right way, not in an argumentative way, and not in a, an argumentative way, and not in a machlekas way, God forbid, but in a peaceful way to, to people, leaders in the community, or rabbonim, 
and see what is going on in the school. The school indeed is claiming it's not taking people in for whatever reason. Now, if there really is no other option for whatever reason, let's say the school is even incorrect, you have to do what you have to do to get your children an education. So I wouldn't look at it that if it has to be in that area, then maybe you have to go to a different school. I wouldn't call it necessarily compromising because you can complement it with tutoring or with your influences of parents at home. There are many solutions. There's also online learning, and there's also at some point sending children to another community. I know parents loathe doing that, but there's a lot of options when you look at something. So at the end of the day, as parents, you're responsible for the education of your children. If the school is not doing what they should be doing, then try your best to deal with that. But if, you, but if you can't do anything there, you still have to deal with your children. Now, as far as the schools go, those that have influence in the schools, we have to know what our responsibility is, as I spelled out. That's a general response to this. Next question. How does one find balance between all the expectations Tadach Siddhis has of us and being at peace and happy with oneself? Spelled out, dear Rabbi, how can one balance between all of the expectations Teda, specifically Teda Sachsidis, has of us, the expectations that Rebbe has of each one of us to always do more? With this perspective, I always feel that I'm lacking, that I'm not doing my best. There's always something more I can do, always something I can fix. Meanwhile, Teda also tells us to constantly be happy, to have simple joy with life, with knowing that all is but Hashem, all is God who is the ultimate good, the ultimate justice, the ultimate love. How does one balance constantly being happy with this perspective and simultaneously knowing that I'm not, that I'm not perfect? Feeling that, feeling that because of my laziness at times, my overindulgence at times, my anger at times, my jealousy at times, I prevent the world from being a better place. How am I expected to remain happy? Please share your wisdom. I'd love to find the balance. So let me refer you firstly to episodes 128, 227, and 230, where similar subjects were addressed. It's an excellent question, and I think it's vital to begin with something very important in general, a general introduction. And that is, very often, many questions that we have, including this one, sometimes are based on a premise that needs to be corrected. The premise is that we go by the standards that we apply to each other. Human standards. You know, you have not lived up to my expectations. Parents sometimes send that message to children. We send that message to each other. And sometimes it gets petty. And sometimes it's based on pure flaws of human beings and our own insecurities. When Taylor expects things of us, and Chassidus expects things of us, and the Rabbeim, it's coming from a healthy place. It's not coming from any psychological phobia or because I need to shine, so I need you to make me look good. It's none of that. It's not coming from guilt and any unhealthy neurosis, neuroses or phobias. It's coming from a place that God created the human being and saying, I created you with tremendous resources. You're creating the divine image. You have the ability to achieve things far beyond your dreams. And I'm giving you now the tools, the resources and the directives not only as obligations, as a gift to live up to your greatest potential. It's all coming from a beautiful vote of confidence and love. Not to create expectations and later say, oh, you know, we can't do it. Or, or God getting even to see, see, I'm proving to you that you're weak. God forbid. There's a famous expression from the Medrash. 
where Hashem says to Moshe, when Moshe says to Hashem, how could you expect this from them? How could they do it? So God says, I never ask commensurate to my power. I'm not asking on my terms. My, I'm asking, I'm only asking them and, and, and asking them to achieve what they can do with their power. As the Rebbe mentions often, different times he says it would be achzorius would be cruel to give someone a job knowing he can't accomplish he or she can't accomplish it so it's a gift when you go with that attitude then you know it's a gift and you do your best the expectations are not meant to demoralize you or made to make you feel guilty or make you feel down it's actually made to make you feel happy that look of god himself vote of confidence in you and every morning renews that that vote of confidence renews your contract now you do your best. You do your best possible. And you hope and pray that that which I couldn't do, you ask God, please help me more. And that's the attitude. When you take that attitude, that's whole, this whole approach, which is so, so unhealthy, called fear and guilt-driven education, teaching people how bad you are, look how little you accomplished, you're lazy, you're not accomplishing. That's not the language that should be spoken to a person. You want to motivate and say, look how much potential you have and look how sad it is you're not filling, living up to your potential so that comes with joy and their motivation as Alter Rebbe says in Tanya anything that demoralizes comes from the Yetzirah even if it's dressed up in garments you're, you're worthless because look you haven't accomplished anything it has to come from an empowering place believing in us and that's how you create this balance knowing that okay next question can we understand the dilemmas we have in life as part of man's need to toil in this world? The writer writes, the words of the Pasuk, Adam la'omel yavolid, man was created, the human being was created to toil, omel. Is this referred only to hard physical work with a body and hands, etc., or as well with a nefesh, with a spirit? If you find yourself in a situation of dilemma, of a mental health issue, for example, are you supposed to look at it and say, it is what it is, comes from Hashem as part of your need to deal with it as part of Adam La'amal Yivalit. So firstly, let me refer you to episodes 4 and 178, again, overlapping themes. And the answer is, firstly, the Gemara says, La'amal, what type of Amal? So there's Amal Malacha, the toil of actual work and labor. There's the toil or labor of Amal Sicha, speaking, which is davening, prayer. And there's Amal Teda, the Yagiyah, the effort we put in learning Teda. So you see right away, it's not just purely physical hard labor. It's the strain, the, the strenuous work and the, and the <clears throat> investment, the rigorous work of both in prayer and in, and in learning Teda. That's number one. As far as this statement that challenges in life, let's say mental health, is it coming for us to be able to, to, to fulfill the struggle? I would not say that's the case. If anything, when there's dilemmas in life, you could say it's in order to bring out deeper strengths you have. And the only way to bring them out is by giving you this dilemma. But not, well, there's no end in itself. Odom la'omiyavola is not, omel is not an end in itself. It's an it's important thing for us to contribute, for us to aveda b'keyachatzmei, our effort, our, initiate, our initiating, our effort and our investment, our being proactive effort, initiating, is necessary in aveda. But it's not just to make a person work hard. Even though, yes, when we work hard, we produce, we become creators. 
So the way I would word it is not that the challenges in life, whether it's mental health issues or others, is in order to fulfill our part of struggling. It's in order to bring out the best in us. And that comes with the struggle. Just to mention that Rebbe is a beautiful word and the, the Zoyar says in Shmois, Al-Tarebbe in brings it, Bechemer Bilvenim, that the Mitzrayim made the Jews work hard labor. Bechemer, bricks and mortar. Says the Zoyar, Bechemer, do kal v'chemer, Bilvenim, do liban hilchase. Chemer comes from the word kal v'chemer. Kal v'chemer is a, way of, a method of learning Teder. You take from a more lenient case, you learn on a more severe case. Kal and chemer. And levenim, which is mortar, lovan, is from the word libun hilchasa, crystallizing halacha. Ask the Rebbe a very simple question. Was this Tama a, a, a play of words? Chemer levenim means bricks and mortar. Just because chemer sounds like kal v'chemer, and here it sounds like levenim, libun hilchasa. The Rebbe says, no, every person has to toil in their lives. We have a choice. Is it going to be hard labor like physical bricks and mortar? Or are you going to choose the strain and the strenuous work in learning Teda, exertion in Teda, Yigiyah B'Teda in Kalvachemir and Liban Hilchus? Okay. And that accomplishes much in Tavshalam at Beis in this year, the Rebbe turned 70, in the Sikh of Yeralaf Nissen, later printed in Chelik Tezvav Lech Lecha, volume 15, Lukut Tesichas, and the letter of Yeralaf Nissen that year of uh, Tavshalam at Beis, 1972, tremendous lesson about Aveda the work of a person, to become a creator. That's the point. God wants us to not just be takers, but to be givers. Not just to receive, but to initiate and create. Okay. With that, we have follow-up. So let's do the follow-up now. A few follow-ups. First of all, regarding the Rebbe and gifts in the car. We spoke about the Rebbe and gifts last week, about the story where the Rebbe rejected the new car that was given to him. So someone who was there, a witness, an eyewitness, says, I remember the incident with the car. The Bachrim knew about the new car. The students, the Bachrim Yeshiva in 770, knew about the new car. And there was a crowd outside watching how the Rebbe would react the first time he saw it. I think there are two issues, this person writes. Number one, there was a big crowd watching. Number two, it was a personal gift for the Rebbe's use. All other gifts, for example, the, painting, the paintings the Rebbe received went into the library. It wasn't for the Rebbe's personal use. Continue. Okay, all the best. Very good points, and thank you for that, to fill in more details on that chapter. Another person writes, Dear Rabbi Jacobson, I really appreciate and value your weekly class. I was surprised that when discussing the Rebbe and gifts, you did not mention the story of the silver Hanukkah menorah. The Rebbe sent it back or refused it due to being, it being too ostentatious. The Rebbe also mentioned something to the effect that he has Chassidim struggling financially and he's going to light a big silver menorah. When, when I saw the story of the car, I figured it was in the same vein. If the Rebbe had a set of wheels that work, why should he get a new car, especially when he has so many Chassidim that struggle, etc.? Thank you again. Okay, good. Thank you for those comments. And this is exactly what I love so much about this program is the interaction. If anybody has additional comments or anything that we missed, Something you'd like to add, please send it and we will share it. Another follow-up was about older singles. After hearing this week's broadcast, meaning last week, episode 275, I felt compelled to add a comment. There was a question from an older single person who felt that he was treated as worthless, he or she, by the Jewish community. Worthless by the Jewish community. My husband and I both, were both considered older singles, quote-unquote, when we married in our 30s. So I thought that perhaps I may be able to offer some advice to this person. 
Number one, please consider moving to a different community if you feel that the majority of people in your community have such a callous attitude towards you. It does not have to be that way. I lived in several different communities while single with very different attitudes toward me. In one community, I was more or less ignored by married ladies except for the occasional invitation for a meal and could only be friends with a few other single women in the community. In another community, I was accepted and embraced by many married families and many ma- had many married friends and was actively involved in the community. Part of it, I think, is certainly due to the midness of the people, meaning their personality, their characteristics, in each community, and part of it is likely due to the fact that in a smaller community, such as the second one, everyone is needed. Number two, make a point to be known for your unique talents and contributions to the community. If people only see you as an older single, try to take pains to show who you are as a person and how you can contribute to the community. I taught a class in the girls' high school on my day off from work, volunteered in the Hebrew Kaddisha, learned Chumash with someone who needed help with Hebrew, and generally tried to help out my neighbors as much as I could. And number three, don't give the impression that you are waiting for your life to start. Build a life based on what you have now. On what you have now. With God's help, you'll soon be married and you and your spouse will need to figure out how to combine your lives. But that's part of marrying at a somewhat older age and really nothing to be afraid of. Thank you very much. Very credible coming from someone who's been through it. I will just say, I mean, the advice to just move out of community, not everyone obviously can do that. So that has to be taken uh, case by case. But the points are all well taken. And I just want to add that marrying anybody at any age is always going to be a work, not just older age. Just be aware of that. One final footnote as a follow-up. Someone wrote to me. I told the story of the Rebetzin and the chocolate with Rabbi Yasef Tevlal of Ashalom. I heard the Shaftim podcast, that was last week, 275. The story about the Rebetzin and chocolate you said about Rabbi Tevel, and I always thought it was with a Gerari who's traveling to South Africa. Surely the story can be confirmed with Rabbi Win- Winner who's related. And further, I think it's in a gem. I don't think the story happened twice. I heard it from Rabbi Tevel himself, all of Ashalom, um, before he passed away. I think uh, just a few months before he passed away, he told it to me in detail, so I heard it firsthand. If it happened with someone else, by all means, but that can be checked. I usually don't read names, but because the names here are relevant, I don't think it's anything confidential. If someone does have more information on this, please share. Okay. Let's now go to the Chassidus question. Ten hidden spheres. Esses spheres hagnuzes is an expression. What are the ten hidden spheres that Esses spheres hagnuzes? Where are they located? in the scheme of things, in the cosmic picture, and what is their function and application to our lives, or in our lives, okay. And their relevance to our lives. Okay, let's begin with their fun- what, the, what it is and its function, and then we'll talk about the levels. So it's a big sugi. We know there's esosphiris. Esosphiris, I actually spoke about in episode 79. What is the purpose of the spheres? Is God did not need anything to create existence. Poof, he could say, I want the world to be here, and that's it. But he wanted to be, as the Alter Rebbe says, the Samach Sadiq cites, to be al as he created the Seichel as we know it. It should be logical. Not just for logic purposes, but also for us to understand it so we can have a relationship with God. We can understand what God did, and we can relate and become partners with God in creation and doing our work. So to do so, you have a whole Seder Ishtashlis. Seder Ishtashlis literally means an order, a, a 
cosmic order, sometimes it's called. Hishtalshlis actually is a, a, a series of evolution of steps. Hishtalshlis, like from the word shalshelis, a chain, a chain of events, cosmic events, spiritual, that lead from the highest levels of Ein Seif, of the divine infinite energy, Ein Sof, all the way to existence as we know it. How does such a leap take place from utter infinite to the finite? So these are, we'll call them stepping stones. The stepping stones are all the levels in the worlds. Within each of these worlds, there's a thing called spheres. Spheres comes from the word counting, sipur, misper, comes from the word sipur, telling a story, and also comes from the word sapir, heaven sapir, like the sapphire stone that illuminates. Also from the word sefer, that's, um, the Rebbe Rashab talks about it at length in Ayin Bey's volume 1, taken from my modem of the Alter Rebbe, Tzamech Tzedek, and Biri and Chayesar, and other places. Okay. So Sfiris serve as, we'll call them divine attributes. Now God, as we know, He's beyond any Midas and any personality, any characteristics. And yet He chose to manifest in particular attributes. And they're called ten attributes. From Chachma through Malchus. These are called the Esosphiris. From that will be Nishtalsal, will evolve lower levels of these attributes until they finally become and they evolve into the ten faculties of the human being, as the Alter Rebbe says in Tanya, that evolve from the ten divine attributes. But like the famous is between the Rambam and the Maral, the Rambam says, He is the knowledge and he's the knower and he's the, the, the knower and all that says the Maral, but he's beyond knowledge, he's beyond any form of attribute. And Chassidus answers, Al-Tareb, and Agon, Tanya, Perik, Beis, and Perik, Gimel, and Perik, Beis, and other places, that uh, in, uh, later in Tanya, and Perik, uh, in the Mems, and also in Shaykh Chedvim, and Perik, Tes, Perik, Memches, in, in Lukut, Amorim, that what? That according to According to the Kabbalah Sarizal, Yitzhiva Milsa, after the Tzimtzum, the Ebersha manifests in these attributes. So that's the ten spheres. So ten spheres, think of it this way, to put it in simple language. The Tater says that we should emulate God's ways. Follow his ways. Just like God is compassionate, we should be compassionate. Just like he's kind, we should be kind. But God's compassion, our compassion are completely, God is the creator, we're the creation. That's the spheres. That when we can relate to the concept of compassion, that we take our compassion and we align it to the compassion of Hashem, the spheres then are serving their purpose of being an interface. An interface both in how the world is, and how our compassion is created, but also how we emulate compassion going back in Aveda and aligning this existence to the ten spheres, which are really, they are basically God's tools and God's uh, channels. There's opinions in Kabbalah what the spheres, whether, they, whether they're Eres Pshutim, Eres Mitzuyarim, whether they have shape and form, whether they're just God's attributes, whether they're just God's tools or they're actually attributes. Here's not the place to go into it, even though it's related. But then there's the ten hidden spheres. The ten hidden spheres is coming to add another dimension. Because you can say then that you're connecting to the spheres, but you're not connecting to the divine essence so it says, no, these spheres are rooted in the highest place. Where we're there, we can only refer to them as hidden spheres. Why are they hidden? Because they're not revealed yet. They don't have substance yet. 
There are different explanations which we'll speak about in a moment and what they are. But it's, the main bottom line is that the point of the Esos is to create the relationship between our chesed, not just the chesed of Atzilus, which is called Esos from the ten spheres that are revealed. Not just our chachma when we learn Teda to God's chachma in Atzilus, but also to the ten hidden spheres. Meaning more, even higher than the divine structure of Atzilus. So we're connecting to that which is higher than Atzilus. So that's their role and that's their function. It's showing us that we are relating not just to the even Atzillus is a great high level. The Alter Rebbe trembled when he even said the word Atzillus. But it goes even deeper and deeper. The question is then is where are these Esosphiris? Hagnuzis. Where are they located exactly? So the Maimonim talk about this in a number of places. And I'll just give you quickly the Maimonim And maybe we'll do part two next week and elaborate more on the details of it. So briefly, it's discussed that in some places I'm going from the bottom up. Sometimes it's, some, in some Maimonim it's called the ten spheres of Atik or Arich. And that's a beard on the Osa Big Day Kedish in Eda Tzava, page 1622. In another Maimarim of the Alter Rebbe, the Maimar of Eda Tzava, I'm sorry, in Tzava Er Noyach, he says it's the ten spheres of Akudim. And there he says, in, uh, and where is this brought? This is the beard of Ulam Chai Oni. I'm sorry, Ulam Chaya Neichi. Ulam Chaya And Derech Metzusecha 182a, and Mayim Rabim from the Reb Marash, Tofresh Lamed Beis, Tofresh Lamed Vov, I'm sorry, chapter 64, cites exactly the Derech Metzusecha, says that according to the Arizal, and just brought, it's either Atik and or Akudim. And he says, Akol Mukhuvin, they're all consistent because bottom line, they're higher than Atzilis. Because that's the whole point of the ten hidden spheres, to say that the spheres are rooted not just in Atsilas, but even higher in this place, which is called Ainsof compared to Atsilas. You find this also in the in, in my modem of the Samach Tzedek. I'm just giving you a few sources. Eda Tere in Yonim, page 140, that he says, I heard from the Alter Rebbe. At times, that is the ten spheres of Atik or Arich, and at times of Akudim. They're also page 287, page 330. This is the Drush Gimel Shittas, the famous Drush of Gimel Shittas. And Eda Terek, in Eda Terek, Kamayim Aponim Leponim, Shalach, the end of page 43, he says, Ten Spheres of Akudim, which in the Loshna Pardis of the Ge'enim is called the Ten Hidden Spheres, like he says in Tera Er that I just mentioned. In Ke'imcha Samarvov, he says, Atik or Akudim. In Ayim Beis, volume 2, page 968, the Maimon Emer, but then we also have that it's also an Eirein Sof. We know Esosphere Sagnuzas. Most people, their knee-jerk reactions say, one second, all this is after the Tzimtzum. What about the ten hidden spheres before the Tzimtzum? So this will leave to part two, and we'll talk about that next week, and go into the details of this because of time limits. So, wait, so I look, look forward to part two on this topic of the ten hidden spheres. Let's go now to the essays. So we do three essays every week of this contest of 2019. We're now in the 50, 60 top essays as we move along. So essay number one in Hebrew, Benatos Lemohus. Between the mistake and the essence. Zushik Krichevsky, age 16, Kfar Chabad, Israel, a student in Tempchit Milan Lubavitch, Elad. So he begins with the famous story of the chassid in the time that Rabbi Marash used to dress like a, like a chassid. 
And then, and by work, he would change his garments. Then he decided that he's being a hypocrite, so he decided to go the other way around. And the Ramadash asked him, why are you dressing in regular garments on Shabbos? Like weekday, uh, you know, no more kapot and so on. He says, because I want to be a hypocrite. And that's who I really am. Ramadash said, I, really, I always thought the real you is the one you dress here. And that's not the real you. So he goes on to speak, me ani, who, who is the real you? Who is the real us? And quoting secular, different psychological perspectives on this, and then talking about the two nefoshes, the two souls in a person, and how we come to really understand these two forces and ultimately have the choice to determine who the real you will be. And then how to implement it in action. I like this essay, very good essay. can be found at chsidasupply.com as well as if you subscribe to our weekly newsletters. We will send them to you as they come, as they're posted, as we publish them. Essay number two is Hasidic Mindfulness, A Purposeful Tranquility. Dan Lewin, age 45, Dallas, Texas. Job, the Mayan Chai Foundation, the rabbi. Hasidic mindfulness. Mindfulness is a very popular, fashionable term today. And this is a Hasidic version. I found this essay to be a tremendous contribution to this topic. And um, I want to talk to the judges why this essay didn't get a higher mark. But I never overrule. But I found this essay to be extremely important for our times. These days, the struggle to arouse motivation and concentration is compounded by constant distractions. At every turn, we have electrical, electronic enticements. Paradoxically, along with enhanced quality of life and technological advances, people unknowingly add to their stress levels by absorbing huge amounts of information from the outside world and take on more and more commitments. So mindfulness practices have come to deal with this. He says, this essay is going to deal with the Hasidic mindfulness. Tranquility within creation. Finding tranquility even amidst the rush hour of creation. With practical steps. And what Hasidus actually adds to other techniques. Maximizing the moment. Very, very well done. It's a very solid essay and a great contribution to this topic. Anyone involved in mindfulness, well worth reading. Well, a very important essay to read in that context. And finally, essay number three, Give me children or I shall die, quote-unquote. Hasidic approaches to confronting the grief of infertility. Sasha Balovsky, age 30, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Her job is speech-language pathologist, Upper Darby School District. Very courageous to take on such a topic. Another important, important essay. One of the greatest joys in life is to hold your child in your arms. What do we do when God withholds that joy from us? Goes on to talk about the, 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 how to deal with this great grief and pain. The gift of pain coming in terms with God's love for us. What do I do with myself? Fighting powerlessness with mitzvahs. Using different ideas from chassidus. What do I have left to give? Discovering your influence and expertise. Extremely important essay as well. Very, very good essay. And there we go. Three essays for this week. My Life Chassidus Applied, episode 276. We're here every Sunday from 8 to 9 p.m. And everyone should have a very blessed Chedeshel as we count down and prepare for the great new year of Tov Shin Pei in this month of El. And as I said, we're here every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. Everyone be blessed and thank you so much.